Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. A very busy Monday, unusually busy Monday. Um, but quick uh, housekeeping item. The Intensive 19 is going to be September 22nd through the 25th. Um, we're going to open up applications this week, maybe today, for those of you on the mentorship list. If you're not on the mentorship list, go to any post on BillHartmanPT.com. Get yourself signed up on that list. You will be first notified um, when applications open. Give you the first opportunity to apply for the Intensive 19. Intensive 18 is this week, so this is Intensive 18 week. Very exciting. So a lot of things to do for that. People coming into town from all over the place, even outside the country. So again, very excited. Uh, today's Q&A was with, with Sandus. The original question uh, from Sandus uh, was in regards to uh, sprinting, and then this led us into some things associated with connective tissue behavior, some testing to differentiate um, what type of connective tissue behaviors you have. So we mentioned things like a Bosco test, which you can look up yourself and find out how that's going to help you to determine um, whether you need to bias training towards more force production or a more power-oriented or a time-constrained type of an activity. Plyometric activities fall into this category as well. So this is going to be a great question for those of you that, that are always trying to determine, well, what do I do with this with this athlete? How do I determine what I should be doing with this athlete? So again, th Sandus, thank you. Very useful question for a lot of people. Everybody have an outstanding Monday. Don't forget to get yourself signed up on the mentorship list today, ASAP, um, so you can be first to apply for the Intensive 19. Have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow. Sandus, welcome back. Hello, Bill. Greetings. So I had a question about jumping and running. Jumping and running? Um, yeah. So basically just sprinting or run, um, jumping in basketball. How does how do those two things connect with the gym? Like what kind of exercise selection do you need to improve those things? Is it like heavier weight and uh, lower reps? Is it like more explosive type of training? Like, uh, I don't know. Who are we talking about? Of... Both. Jumping but I mean like, but who are we talking about? So, so, so the, there's not a, a is there, I'll, I'll get the vertical jump cookbook out and we'll, we'll go through that. Right, you can't really do that, can we? Right, yeah. we gotta, we gotta, we gotta talk about, we gotta talk about problems and solutions. We can't just say that. Oh, if you want to jump higher, this is how you do it. If you wanna, if you want to uh, uh, run faster, this is how you do it. Now, here's the one thing that we can say: is that the greater the force that we can apply to the ground in the shorter period of time that's going to impact both of those. The question mark is, is how does this individual need to do that? Is it, is, it an, is it the fact that they don't produce a high enough force, okay? Or do they produce a high force, they just can't do it quickly? Okay. So that would be the difference, right? The, the, the one absolute is force into the ground is the, is the so when you look at, <clears throat> are you familiar with uh, Peter Wayans study? On sprinting? No. Weyand, it's W-E-Y-A-N-D, I believe. No. Okay, grab it. It's one of the better ones. Okay. And and okay. but what what he showed, what he showed was that that top speed sprinting. So this is this is when you're you're vertical, you're gonna push almost straight down into the ground. The higher the force into the ground in the shorter period of time, the faster you will run. Okay. From a vertical jump perspective, we need the same thing. I have to push harder into the ground so I can go in, in the opposite direction. The question mark is, like I said, is like, okay, is this a, is this a force in, in per unit time? So the impulse, or is it the, the, the fact that you can't produce force into the ground? And so that's gonna be the determining factor. And how do you change that? How do you know that? Like that's the limiting factor. Well, there's a you, you could okay. So you want to you want to read up on Carmelo Bosco, B O S C O, okay. Okay. Um, so there's a series of tests that you can do to determine which factor is the the deficit. Okay. So you ever do a vertical jump test? 
Yeah. Okay. Do you do you know the difference between a counter movement jump and and where you you squat down, you hold for four seconds and then jump? I Are you familiar with that? that? Are you familiar with that? No. Okay. No. So you want to read up on explosive strength deficit? Okay. Okay. All right. But but you can you can determine whether it's it's force related or um, the the uh, connective tissue behavior being the limiting factor by using those two different jumps because the 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 dampening of the counter movement demands greater force production um, be applied to get the connective tissue to move so you can jump so if you if you um, if you had a, a those two jumps so you do a counter movement jump and you do a hold and then jump. And if they're equal, then, then you're using the same strategy under both circumstances, which would bias you more towards the fact that you don't have great connective tissue behaviors. What would be the uh, connective tissue behaviors? What does that mean? Bouncy, 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 bouncy. You don't bounce well. So just weak uh, connective tissues? It's not weak connective tissue, it's connective tissue behaviors. So your, your connective tissues behave more like a leather belt instead of a rubber band. So if you try to stretch a, stretch a leather belt, how, how hard is it to stretch? It's very really good. hard to stretch. How much energy does it release when you let go? Not very much. If I take a rubber band and I stretch it and I release it, that's a lot of energy. So that would be a representation of really stiff connective tissues that don't store and release energy. And then the rubber band would be connective tissues that do store and release energy, right? And so the, the activities that you need to do to make the connective tissues behave more like a rubber band are the kind where you move into a position and out of a position progressively at higher rates. So you start to expose the, the connective tissues to the sort of like the rubber band type behaviors. Okay. Okay. So uh, it, it, would, it, it would be categorized in, in traditional standards as plyometric behaviors. Okay, I gotcha. Okay. You would need more of those types of activities versus oh. trying to increase somebody's, you know, one RM back squat. That would be more of a force related okay. behavior. You see the difference between okay. the two? Yeah. 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 So it's just a different type of trainings that you have to like. Right. And, and, and okay. you know, one's not better than the other. It's just a matter of, of distribution of how much you need. Right? Okay. But, but there's, there's, there's plenty of tests around. Like I said, Bosco test is it. Manuel, do you use a Bosco test with your lifters? Okay. I kind of figured you would. Yeah. So, yeah, if you look up Bosco tests, B-O-S-C-O, um, it's, it's a great little test that'll give you their bias as to uh, what their strategy is um, um, in a time-dependent activity like vertical jumping or sprinting, okay? Start there, okay. understand that, and then um, uh, sort of create your list of activities that you would say would be more force-related versus more um, power-oriented where there's a time constraint. And again, that, that would be like your jumping and hopping and all of this stuff that falls under the plyometric category. Okay. Okay. So it's not related, like obligatory with gym. I'm sorry. Like it's not needed to have like a gym to do those kind of things. Well, well it, it depends it, on what you're doing. Like, yeah. Like, do you know? Do you know the fastest way to improve your your top speed sprinting? Not at all. Sprint. Do you know the fastest way to improve your vertical jump? Jump. Jump. It's specific. It's 100% specific to what you're doing, right? High jumpers, high jumpers do thousands and thousands and thousands of jumps. And if you've ever looked at like their Achilles tendon on their jumping leg, it's ridiculous how adaptive that sucker is. They get this big honking thick Achilles tendon on one side just from doing a bunch of jumps, like thousands of jumps over a period of years. 
right? And, and so they optimize the stiffness and the ability to store and release energy in the, the, the longer tendons that store the most, right? That's a pure adaptation from the activity itself. Right. It's always the fastest way. If you want, you want to increase throwing speed, throw. If you want to you jump higher, jump. Now, there are supplementary training that you can do to enhance those things to whatever degree you are adaptable, but that's typically the fastest way to do it. So that would be the same as you explained before, like the leather belt transforming into the rubber band. Yeah. Like over the years. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Thank you. You're this welcome, is very sir. helpful. You're welcome. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. A very busy Tuesday coming up. Um, quick housekeeping item. Applications for the Intensive 19 went out last night to the mentorship uh, list. If you are on that list, please check your email. And if you're interested in attending the intensive, please fill out your application and return it in a timely manner. But please be thoughtful in your responses. Digging into today's Q&A, this is with Dante. This was a follow-up question on the last Coffee and Coaches conference call um, in regards to the difference between connective tissue behavior and muscle orientation. So again, these are one of these foundational questions. That, um, that still has a little bit of confusion behind it um, because of the way that, that some of the information has been um, applied and reported in, in the research. The, the distinguishing characteristics between connective tissue behavior and muscle orientation have not been very clearly delineated, um, which is why you'll see static stretching uh, uh, research that is attempting to increase range of motion and, and failing miserably. Um, the, the, the changes are very small. Um, they are not maintained um, for very good reason because that type of an activity is designed to emphasize connective tissue behavior, which is not designed to change range of motion. So thank you, Dante, for asking a great question. We break this down. It takes about nine minutes for us to get through it, but, but, uh, but a lot of good stuff here. So again, thank you, Dante. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday. I will see you tomorrow. Dante. Yeah. And good morning, Beer. Greetings. And a really, and a really quick follow-up with Sandy's question. Uh, the talk about the counter movement of, uh, of jump, right? So uh -huh. it's include a stretch and shortening cycle in the counter movement, right? Sure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to confirm that that means when we landing, the connective tissue behavior is yielding. Yes. And when we jump so. up, it's overcome. Yeah, yeah so, I hope so. I hope so. So that so does that mean if I if we get a better on the counter movement that means we have better the connective connective tissue behaviors and it's uh, better or good for the relative motion no 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 okay connective tissue behavior hang on the reason that you have the connective tissue behaviors in the first place is because you actually stopped the relative motion and the connective tissues keep moving Okay. This is why static stretching does not improve range of motion to any significant degree because it's not supposed to. It's, it's, it's connective tissue behavior. Muscle orientation, so the change in, in, in the concentric to eccentric orientation of a muscle is what changes a joint position. That improves range of motion. See, they're, they're confusing things because they're not paying attention to what's actually happening during the, 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 the stretching element, which would be the yield. Okay. Okay. Stuff moves. No question about that. But it's not relative joint motion. Like you don't, like when you're, when you're trying to train connective tissues, you don't want relative motion because I need the connective okay. tissue behavior to be the stuff that moves, oh, not yeah. the joints. I understand. I understand. Yeah. Just like the ankle motion when we jump. The, just the arcadic tendon, just the stretch and shortening. right. Yes, okay. yes. That's so, why. Yeah. Hey, uh, Dante, you ever, you ever, you ever, you ever work with somebody that's a really good jumper? No. No. Any, any, 
Manuel's probably had a few decent jumpers. Dale, you've had a few good jumpers. Stiffest people on the planet. Stiffest people on the okay. planet. Yeah. yeah because, because that degree of stiffness is favorable because if you do deform the tissues, so if I take a really thick rubber band and I can stretch it, it stores a tremendous amount of energy to be released. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A skinny rubber band, easy to deform, doesn't release nearly as much, right? So, so yeah, when we just, if you good at the jump, the, all the muscles during the jump is uh, almost isometric contraction. I hope so. But it, yeah. I hope yeah, so. So all the yeah. movement just uh, occur, occur in the connective tissue. Yeah. So here, so here you go here. I will give you the, I will give you the difference. Okay. You're standing on a, on a, a two meter box. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and you're going to jump off of it. It's really high. That's really high. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> okay. All right. You're going to land and then try to jump immediately upon landing. Yeah. Okay. Or, or you're going to land and try to stick the landing, right? Like a gymnast coming off of the high bar, right? Where they stick it. All right. In one case, the connective, you're going to land, you're going to try to stiffen your body, but the connective tissue is going to expand. And then you're going to use that recoil to try to leave the ground again. On the other one, you're going to allow the joints to move progressively in a, in a manner to slow down. So the joint has to change position. So the muscle can change its orientation to dampen the connective tissues because I want all that energy to dissipate. I don't want to store it and release it. I want to dampen it and spread it out as much as possible. There's the difference in yeah. your connective tissue behavior. Yeah, I understand. So just uh, 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 a follow-up question with it is, why do we just try to make the yield in the all of the part? Maybe we need to correct, just like uh, for me. If I'm, I have been pushed forward, I need to yield my posterior uh, pelvic. But if the the ear is just uh, occur in the connective tissue. How can I just change the orientation of the, the muscle? And uh, how can I uh, restore the, orientation the relative of the motion? Yeah. You're asking how to change the orientation of the muscle? Yeah. Um, you, you, you do that by position. Okay. So number one, you have to be put in a position where you don't need concentric orientation in the for, for limiting musculature. For example, it's just uh, the first, uh, the front foot elevated split squat, the right foot front. Uh -huh. yeah? And uh -huh. uh, when I doing this movement, I, uh, we just want to create the yielding in the uh, right back of the pelvis, right? The, uh, it, yes, because you're, you're trying to create a, you're trying to slow down the forward progression. So yeah. that, would, that would be an increase in yielding. But again, that, that is a rate dependent change. That's not the joint range of motion changing, right? That's just the connective tissue behavior. It's like, it's like putting a parachute on, on somebody that's trying to run forward. It's to slow things down. But right? if I that's just only, I mean, but if I just only create a new behavior, not new behavior, just creating the yielding in the connective tissue, how can I to change the relative motion of my... You don't change relative motion via connective tissue behaviors. Yeah. So how can I change? Or we just don't need to so change the so, relative motion. Okay. So as you move through the excursion of the split squat. Yeah. Okay. You move from an ER bias at the top of the split squat to an IR bias at the bottom of the split squat. Okay, that yeah. requires a yeah. shape change. So the pelvis has to change its shape and the muscles have to change their orientation as you move through space. Otherwise the joints don't change position. And then all you yes. feel is tension associated with the connective tissues. Oh, yes. Okay, so, so that's yeah. the difference between the two. Okay. But, but as far as changing the muscle orientation, that is, that is movement but again, that's determined by um, what strategies you're using. So if you're, as you said, you're pushed forward, okay, which means mm -hmm. you've got a lot of posterior muscle, uh, concentric muscle orientation that creates that compression that pushes you forward. You need yeah. to be put into a position where that strategy is not required. 
So you have to change the orientation of gravity. So instead of standing up, maybe you have to do something on the ground. So those muscles don't have to control those forces that you're, you're um, unintentionally trying to control, right? So you, so you take gravity out of the equation and then that might allow you to move more freely because you don't need those muscles to remain as active. That's why we change okay. positions. That's why we might do okay. something where we, like we do an arm bar laying on the ground because it takes gravity out of the equation. It allows us to access movements that we may not be able to access when we stand up. And then we progressively make those activities more difficult. And then that arm bar becomes top speed sprinting. Okay, so um, so 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 you oh, sorry. So we just uh, use the delay strategy to change the connective tissues behavior, make yes. it yielding, and we use uh, shape change or a movement position change to change the muscles Perfect. orientation. Yes. Okay. The only thing I would say different, the only thing I would say different is that the connective tissue is the delay strategy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like we yeah. don't use the delay strategy. It, 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 it is the same thing. Like they are okay. creating that, they are creating the slowdown because again, that's a rate dependent influence. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is. Perfect. All right. Today is Wednesday. That means tomorrow morning, as usual, 6 a.m. Thursday morning, Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Uh, this is call number 113 since we started numbering them. Um, so we're getting pretty good at it. So please join us, grab some coffee, and uh, uh, get some Q&A. Great people on the call. Always a great time. Um, now, Second item, the applications for the Intensive 19 are open and they are rolling in and it's happening very, very quickly. Um, so I'm probably gonna open this up to the public um, but very, very soon, probably later this evening. We will open this to the public for a very short period of time to get a couple more applications in because we're really close to our target number. Um, so thank you all for your, for your interest so far. And then we'll get the selection process for that after this weekend because the Intensive 18 is this weekend sponsored by Neuro Coffee, there you go, Neuro Coffee. That's my commercial, um, our official unofficial sponsor, if you will. Um, so please um, be looking for that. I'll, I'll announce that probably on, on social media in some way, shape or form. But if you're on the mentorship list and you've been waiting to put your application in, please do so very, very quickly so you get that in. Because again, once I open it to the public and we've only got a few spots left available, uh, we will shut that down um, very, very quickly. All right, getting into today's Q&A. This is with Christian. Christian had a neat question. Um, as with all other aspects of, of the, the movement system, the knee goes through the propulsive cycle. So there are, there are elements where it is exposed to an ER bias. There are elements where it's representing the IR bias. And if we can understand that a little bit more effectively, number one, our examinations get a whole lot better. And then as do our interventions. And so we're much more successful in situations, especially when we have some sort of what we could refer to as a mechanical knee problem um, that's not associated with the structural change. Um, a lot of times, like the all those special tests that you get taught in, in PT school are not terribly helpful um, in any way, shape, or form um, in, in a situation where somebody might walk in the door and they got an MRI that says, hey, my knee is structurally intact, but I'm still having a lot of pain. It's like, how do you examine that knee? How does it become useful? We need to understand how this knee moves through the propulsive cycle. If we can understand that, like I said, we get a whole lot better. And that's what Christian's question is all about. So it should be useful for a lot of people that are dealing with some, some knee issues or, or you have a client that has maybe a knee problem that you're trying to work around. Um, again, this will be very helpful. Thank you, Christian. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I'll see you tomorrow morning on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call and be looking for the opening of applications for the Intensive 19 to all of you fine folks. I will see you tomorrow. Hey, good morning, Bill. How's it going? Oh, there he is. Okay. It is going well. Good, good. So I had another question. Uh, I, had a, I have a question about um, the knee and the propulsive cycle of yep. the knee of... of, of of um, what it does during a squat and also what it does just when you're checking the heel to butt, heel to butt measurement, if there's any yep. difference between those two. No, nope, same thing. Same thing? Okay, so yep. when 
when the knee is at the top of the squat, when the knee is fully straight. Is it fully straight at the top of a squat? No, I guess it's not. I hope so, not. No. no. <laughs> um, would it be the tibia is relatively ER'd um, and the femur is a little relatively IR'd or, or are they more kind of stacked above one another? Um, so uh, under load, under load, okay. it would it would be more of like a like an even representation through the knee in a, in a perfect world because again you're you're applying greater force into the ground. So the the greater the application of force into the ground, the more of an IR orientation you would want, which would be like a, a, a femur relative to the tibia, like like this, like a negative or, or a um, uh, equivalent position facing forward, so to speak. So you wouldn't want like an IR femur on an ER tibia under that circumstance. It might be moving towards that direction as you, as you straighten the leg, but because of the load, it would be, it would be reduced. Right. Cause you want, whenever you're pushing into the ground, you want to be able to push straight through that, that joint with the least amount of relative motion uh, required. Got it. Okay. And so if we're talking about the right, the right knee, as you go down towards 90 degrees in the mm -hmm. squat, mm -hmm. in does the posterior medial aspect of that right knee, does that move towards concentric orientation? Is the, is the, is the tibia starting to IR? It's starting to IR. Mm -hmm. starting to IR. Yes. To IR. yes. So as you descend, as you descend, okay, the internal rotation is increasing from the bottom up. Okay. So okay. then, so that means that the posterior medial would start to become more concentrically oriented is that what it is um theoretically yeah that'd be a, that you could look at it that way okay. mm -hmm. so that that would become more concentric so that like the yeah because like so so uh, think about the think about the opposite extreme think about the opposite extreme like the opposite extreme would be like a screw home okay right? got it and then you think but, about where where would yeah i mean and again um relatively speaking you're 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 probably right Okay. But now once we get past that nine degrees and get all the way to full knee flexion, does the tibia have to re-ER? Because I'm thinking about the ER, IR, ER um, propulsive cycle. So does it have to re-external <clears throat> rotate? What kind of a what kind of an activity are we doing? So I want to look at just a deep squat all the way and then just when they're laying What kind down. of a deep squat are we doing? Are we doing a deep squat with with hundred kilos on your back or are you just sitting down into okay. a deep squat? Um, so we'll do just sitting down into a deep squat. Then, it, then it's good. Okay. Then you're going to get a re ER. A re ER. Okay. Yes. A re ER. So that's when we do see that ER, IR, ER. But you actually, so <clears throat> in the bottom of a deep squat, you're going to actually lose, you're going to, you're going to probably lose like lateral knee contact, so to speak. I mean, it's not actually touching or anything like that, but you're going it, to, it's, it's very passively compressed. <clears throat> under that circumstance and so there's a there's there's that turn into er where there's okay. if, if they, they've got pictures of this on uh, mris um, where they do like a, like a, the extreme end range of passive knee bending okay and you actually you actually see the the tibial plateau slide away from the femoral condyle where from they they will say that it loses contact but it, it was never touching in the first place but okay. but you will see it almost like disassociate. So if I'm trying to get so that, that, the only way that happens is, is with an ER turn. ER turn. Okay. So it's slightly ER relative to the femur in that case. Yes. Yes. So it has to, it actually has to like, like you can't, you can't hold, you can't hold the congruence of the tibia and the femur and fully compress the knee without Absolutely. probably something bad happening. So whenever I have somebody and, you know, they, they're gaining their knee flexion back and we're getting stuck, say, around 120, 130-ish, um, and I want to do something manual like tibial mobs, anterior to posterior, yep. should I try to bias more towards the tibial ER in that case because we're, we're moving to, to try to get heel to butt? In most cases, you shouldn't have to worry too much about the, the ER element 
I shouldn't worry too much. I should just kind of. Um, yeah, because it's usually through the middle range where the limitation, like again, so this becomes very passive. At, so, so like the compressed heel to butt position is very passive. Like I said, it's, it's, it, it becomes less about the, the actual joint range of motion. And we're back to kind of Paul's question. Like we're talking about connective tissue behaviors here. Okay. Right. So it's not a muscle orientation problem, but through the middle range is where you tend to, you, you tend to have the greatest difficulty because that's where you, the tibia needs to internally rotate. Internally rotating. Got it. Got it. Okay. Cause you can, you can compress heel to butt and never internally rotate the tibia if you have the right muscle orientation. And when I say the right muscle orientation, it's not optimal muscle orientation. It's just the fact that you got a BMO that is eccentrically oriented. That's allowing an expansion to occur in that anterior medial aspect of the knee. And that you'll get a heel to butt, but you'll get it with, with never having gone through tibial IR. IR. Okay. Which is not, which is not desirable. Got it. Got it. So things to reduce that because there could be changes within the like the connective tissue itself where it becomes stiffer and yeah and, uh, a lot yeah. tougher to recapture that yes sir uh, range of motion would yes. long duration holds at a pain-free range of motion be well yeah well pain-free pain I mean, that, that's always a nice thing um the, the long duration stuff i mean and again you know um you don't want to be destructive okay. right you got to be careful with that when you're doing the long duration stuff. Okay. You know, it's like, do you ever have anybody in a dynasplant? Yes, we have. We have. Yep. Yeah. It's like torturous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not a big, I, I mean, I understand that, you know, if you need the, the, the joint excursion then you need to sprain a joint, I get it. Right. It's just not, I, it's not, I don't like it. It, it, it makes me uncomfortable, <laughs> got it, got but it. I do understand the reasoning behind it. it was, cause, cause, sometimes that the connective tissue uh, stiffness will be one of those constraints. Right. But, but here's, so, so here's the thing though, Christian, that, that you, you got to be really, really careful of is that you have to have a pretty decent understanding of what orientation you're looking at from a bony perspective, because if you, if you have a, a, a twist in the, in the tibia, that is the interference pushing it into compression is not going to be the solution. It's literally like, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to create such a compressed space that, that you, you have a fluid compartment that is compressed and there will be no movement. And then the only way that you will make progress is to probably bend something into a position that you would rather not do that to. Okay. Like people do that all the time. Like, like that when, when they come see us and they have knee, knee problems, it's because they are bending things as a substitution to the ranges of motion. That's why we have to mobilize some, some of these joints to create the orientation, to reduce the, the need for them to utilize a bony bend. Got it. I mean, you see, you see the, what all you gotta do is look at somebody with a, with a, like a bowed leg that comes to see you. Right. It's like, why did they do that in the first place? Because that's their substitution for the fact that they don't have normal access to, to ranges of motion. So in that case, it's better to play the, the long game and have, teach them to maintain the relative motions proximally yes. throughout the day, twice yeah. a day, that kind of deal. Yes. And just play the long game, not just try to, you know, long duration, crank on their knee, whatnot, you know. There, there is a time and place for, for such things. I just think it's very rare. Okay. And, and again, I don't, I back in the olden days when I worked for other people and yeah. I was seeing 24 patients a day, you know, yeah. you have that kind of stuff, but they want you I don't, to I don't see that stuff anymore. So. Yeah. They, they want you to get to a certain range of motion by a certain date. Understood. And then, yeah, not a, not a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of that. Okay. But I, I, like I said, it's one of those things that, it, that makes me uncomfortable because all I feel like I'm doing is inflicting pain. Got it. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's like if the, if the, if the, the desired outcome is pure ranges of motion, you can sprain a joint to do that. Sprain. I see. I see. If you're just chasing a number, but I'm not That's a big true. fan. That's true. Okay. Okay. Got it. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Happy uh, intensive 18 day.
can Matt please make your highlight clip? That'd be that'd be great. Which it that that whole last like ten minutes. The whole ten minutes. Yeah, just starting from Alex's question, and then. Oh okay. Yeah. Huh. I, mean, I don't know if we're allowed to make requests. I'm I'm not in <laughs> DJ. Please. Good morning. Greetings. So I have a couple of questions. Um, one of which being, if I have a wide ISA with posterior lower compression, is it sufficient to lie them on their side and have them roll over their uh, posterior lower ribs? Or is there an additional shape change of the ribs that I might need to take account of? Well, I, I don't know if it's sufficient or not, but it is a way to initiate that process. So right? I, I guess Go ahead. another way of saying it could be like, if I just apply medial lateral, medial lateral pressure, um, have them breathe into it and kind of wrap my hand around, is that sufficient? Or would I also need to like pull back a little bit posteriorly to try and get a shape change? Okay. Um, you weren't on last week's call. No. Doggone it. See, you would have already gotten the answer for this. This is what happens when I miss one. <laughs> Sir, and, and I'm, I'm not, I, 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 truly, it's like you, if you would have been on last week's call. Um, Jang, was it you that you asked about the ISA role? Yeah. Okay. So think about, think about the orientation of the, of the lower rib cage for a wide ISA. Okay. So, so they're going to be in a compensatory ER to take a breath in, right? Okay. So the ISA is going to turn up and out like that. Yeah. Okay. So, so when you're applying pressure to the rib cage, you have to think about the opposing um, position, right? Which is going to be that oblique angle internal rotation of the anterior rib cage. And so when you say, is it enough for me to push sideways? It's like, this is a helix, right? So we got to think uh, along those lines. It's like, I got to go from this ER position to the IR position, don't I? Yes. Okay. Yeah, sorry. And that I understand. I guess my question is, um, so like the normal wide ISA bias is the ER position, but then you get the compression, which is going to push it yes. forward. Yeah. So is it, is it enough to like curl the ISA down and in, or do I need to exert a posteriorly driven force? Well, there help? better be a posteriorly driven force, or you're not going to get any posterior expansion that's associated with the, with the, uh, the intervention, right? But the degree to which is something that you're probably going to do in real time by observation. Okay. Right. It's like, it's like, you're going to push and you say, okay, uh, how do they respond? You go, you know what? I need to tweak this a little bit. I need to get a little bit more from the side or I need to go a little bit more from the anterior. Because again, you're, you're going to be on an oblique angle as you're applying it to a wide ISA. Because if you went straight, straight A to P, that would be something that you might use a little bit more in a narrow ISA because you have to actually bend the ribs back into position. Whereas in this case, you have, you have ribs that are, that are um, bent and, and ER'd right? And I have to push from the outside. And I have to kind of curl it back in towards itself. The, the, way, that, the way that I always picture it in my head to, to give me the line of drive, so to speak, is I'm trying to tuck the lower aspect of the ISA inside the pelvis, right? So if I get it to turn back inside the pelvis, then I know I'm capturing the IR representation. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, so follow up to that, um, a wide ISA as it approaches closer to end game, um, I feel like a lot of times they get like a very excessively ER lower thorax, just like a bunch of space yeah. in there. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I feel like, like the, the, the space in there and the degree of ER orientation, like, like because they've tapped out that end range just makes it basically impossible to turn. So do I do I spend most of my time in that situation pushing them like that section of their thorax more forward on that oblique first rather than more trying to pull it back? Does that make sense? Okay, like so trying to get the the ribs strictly to IR. Okay, so um, open open the I'm looking down on the thorax. 
open it like a caliper. Yeah. That's kind of where they're going to be. You see it? Yeah, just way open. See, yeah. So but it's kind of like this. It's like I'm pulling, like if if you connect my put a string between my 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 fingers. And so there's hi Lewis. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so it's gonna pull open like that, right? So that's that's the shape that you're looking at. And so to, to reverse the gears, you gotta go like does that make sense? Yeah. You see, I, mean, you I guess my question is, is it like a sequential process? Because I feel like I can't I don't really know. I don't know. Okay. But sometimes I may not be able to originally I just like straight up pull them back at the same time. Correct. So what you so what you may find, what you may find from, from a sequential uh, uh influence is I actually have to push the, the posterior rib cage forward and then curl it around and then pull it back. Gotcha. You, you see it because so, like again it's like you if my thumbs are where the where the ribs are meeting the spine and i'm pulling back like this do you see how you've got this this shape here that i have to go like that and then pull it back so it comes back into position again the caliper the caliper representation is a really good one um it, you'll actually see this described in the literature um for the the uh, lower most uh like like ribs nine and ten um, or the uh, the the so-called uh, what what are the imaginary ribs at the bottom called? Are they they're they're the uh, floating ribs, All right? So it, you'll see the calipering of the lower lower rib cage. Yeah. It's a it's a pretty good mental representation to to guide what you're asking, I think. Yeah. So okay. so with the narrows with the very bent straight ribs, who then are the swaybacks? So like they stand, they sit, yes. whatever, and they like they yep. go like that yep. really far. I'm with you. Um, yep. In that situation, even though they're when they enter the sway back position, they're kind of like their ribs are, I guess, sort of ERing posteriorly, or at least like the the, the spinous processes are ERing. Um, that's a situation in which you would more just want to bend the ribs from a less straight position rather than try and focus on, or you'd like bend the ribs back. And I, I guess get them to. Okay, so, yeah. so when, as the ribs, so this is this the ribs straightening. Okay, so start there, and then they straighten. They go like this. They go like that. So they go down and forward like that. Okay, so the pressure that you're going to use is going to be up and back like that to create the curve. Okay. Because so here's a, here's a common error. People push on the front of the rib cage on a narrow ISA and they push down into the table and they shove the ribs further down. It's the exact wrong direction. <laughs> okay. There, it's actually, it's, a, it's an A to P compression, but it's in the inferior to superior direction on the helix. Yeah. Okay. That's the direction you have to go. Because if you just push straight down in the table and it, it, it's one of the funniest things you're ever going to see the first time you do it. It's funny for you. It's not funny for the person that you're doing it to. You suffocate them because you push them down and you go, take a breath in. And then they can't take a breath in. And they go, <laughs> you just pinned them down to the, to the table. Yeah, I've done right? it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, everybody's <laughs> the first time you start messing around with the rib cage. It's like, yeah, you screwed up pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you see, you see what I'm getting at. It's like, it's like, you got it. You've got it. It's important to understand where they came from. You start with this, imaginary the imaginary tweener between the wide and the narrow like as far as where they go move them into the wide wide space you kind of know where they are now and then what what direction of force you need to apply to change the shape same thing with the with the uh with the narrows you have to appreciate the the um as they're they're coming down on the helix right and they're going up on the helix you see it yeah so to simplify it, would you say you're tucking the wide rib cage into their pelvis and you're tucking the rib cage of the narrow up into itself again? Like um, you could you could look at uh, so so from an angle perspective, like on the helix, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Bill, would you would you ever use like a that you would the on an arrow that you would compress the inferior ISA? ribs of the inferior ISA 
and with the opposite hand try to open the the superior part of the eye say just what you talked about so that you're not you know what i mean so you get the so yeah. you get the yeah. right shape back as i'm compressing the lower i'm opening the the superior part of the isa so i'm not, not just shoving everything in okay the easiest way to do that is is via the change in muscle activity um which which um i'll do this i'll do this most often in a seated position um so so if i wanted to influence the, the near the apex of the of the isa right so if you were seated on the end of a treatment table right i would be standing to your to behind you and to your left and i would reach around like i'm going to give you a little little hug around the, the right side and i would i would turn it in that direction and come over with the left and so I, come, I come behind them to the anterior i i i i uh, capture the 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 muscle at the ISA, and then yeah. I I turn the, and I turn them, so they're going to turn on the diagonal for me. So they're going to create this helical orientation this way. I'm going to guide the muscle activity to get it to turn with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's how you would influence like the 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 apex of that, and then All you right. can actually you can do the same thing. You just slide your hand down if I needed to ER the uh, lower aspect of it, I could do the same thing, but it requires a little bit more of a, of a, it's a different, it's a different orientation of the axial skeleton to create it. And that would be more for a wide ISA on a, on a. Uh, again, it, it's, it depends on, it de just depends on where, where you are. On because the, I was playing with something similar, like holding on to the apex of the, of the ISA. But could you go like with the left arm over and close the lower as um, I do if, that? If you're married to the patient, I think that's acceptable. Yes. All right. <laughs> it's very intrusive. It, it's yeah, very yeah. intrusive. It's yeah. literally you have your arms wrapped around somebody that you don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a little weird. It's a little weird yeah. for people. It's like uh -huh. if you're working with an athlete, they don't care. Like they don't yeah. care. They just do whatever you got to do. But, yeah. you know, if I have, you know, a, a, a young mother of two coming in that's going to sit on the end of the table, it's like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm not. Doing All that. Right. And <laughs> with, the, with the wide ISA scenario where Alex said that they have very ER uh, posterior lower ribcage, mm -hmm. because the, the spine is ER at that point as well. So we have a bend in the spine, if I, if I see it right. Would, would it make sense to to try manipulate that in like a three month prone position and just to just to reduce the the ER orientation or the bend in the, if you in put the a, okay if you put somebody in that if you hang on if you put somebody in that orientation that's a wide ISA and you put them face down oh yeah I'm just you got to be careful with that because you're you're yeah. you're you're pushing them you're potentially pushing them back first which is what you wouldn't want to do it doesn't yeah. mean you can't do that I wouldn't do it first because you, you, you don't like, so that would be a situation where you would probably want to go like a sideline activity and then maybe a half prone. Okay. Where, okay. So, so, so the sideline gets me the AP, the half prone starts to create the, the turning. All right. All right. And you know, we, that? like do yeah, it one sided, yeah. trying to do something that bilateral symmetrical in, in that position for a, for a wide individual that's already um, ER like that is very difficult to do. It's not impossible. Okay. It's just hard. Like yeah. half prone, half prone does a really nice job of, of initiating the turn on somebody that doesn't turn well. Yeah, and really make sure as they do that half prone position that they don't er through their spine because those that would be correct. Sir. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. That's all Thank you. The, that's all in the setup, right? Yeah. Yep. All right. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Uh, it's the unlearning day of the intensive today. So this is the day of pain and anguish and struggle that everybody enjoys so much. So we're really looking forward to that. Got a lot to do um, before that happens. So a uh, quick housekeeping item. 
uh, the applications for the intensive 19 are going to be closed probably today. Uh, I'm like, I think I'm one or two applications away from our target number. Um, so if you're going to fill out those applications and send them in, please do so quickly uh, so you can get your application in for the intensive 19. I think we're going to decide that by August 4th. And so we'll let you people know that have applied whether you've made it in. Remember, there's only eight people that can get in. We've got to keep it tight. We've got to keep it intensive. Uh, digging into today's Q&A is with Peter. Peter, a great foundational question. Um, essentially what we're going to do is we're going to be breaking down the squat from a late, middle, and early representation. And we're going to look at how the center of gravity actually moves during each one of those, those phases. So this is a great foundational question for a lot of people that, that are still a little confused as to, as to how the late and early representations um, sort of uh, shift the center of gravity as we move through space. So Peter, great question. Thank you so much for asking it. Uh, the podcast will be up on Sunday, probably a little late because we got the intensive on Sunday morning, um, but it will be up there probably sometime Sunday afternoon. Everybody have an outstanding weekend and I'll see you next week. Hey, good morning. My, my question is pretty similar. Um, I wanted to talk about what happened with the center of gravity during a squat and how we might influence it and what you might even like, I guess, call the influences. Uh -huh. um, so when you're doing a squat, your center of gravity starts backwards. As you go down to the, the sticking point, it goes forwards. No. Okay. So let's, let's, let's think about this for a second. Mm -hmm. um, do you understand the movement of the sacrum through the, the excursion? Um, meaning, like if you're in a more upright posture, the sacrum, I guess, is in a more um, so the bi position. So the bias in standing is, is, is towards nutation. Yeah. Okay. But as soon as I initiate the squat, okay, I have to move, mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to start to move, and that's going to be actually a late representation. So is that more nutation? No, it's actually going to be a counter-nutated position, but there's going to be pressure against the sacral base. Okay, so okay. this is the difference between a late ER and an early ER. So it's actually an overcoming representation in ER. Okay. Okay. All right, follow me so far. Yes. Awesome. Okay. So the the uh, center of gravity, um, as far as its its superior. Uh, uh, inferior direction will be slightly up yeah okay because of that because of the sacral position now again it is compressed forward so it's not it's not in it it's it's most superior representation one second love you um okay but it because it is an er representation it's not going to be you're not maximally pushing into the ground okay all right as you as you um, get to the sticking point, now now you're and, and I, I think you actually said this. Now you're actually going to be pushing down, right? So the yeah. center, your so your density, your your the physical density of your structure increases, the nutation increases, and the the downward force increases. So some okay. people get stuck there. Yeah, and that means they can't get back to the early representation which is below that below there that yes the early representation is below the sticking point yeah yeah okay. and that's another expansion mm -hmm. okay that, that actually is the center of gravity shifting backwards right uh, yes sir absolutely okay. <laughs> it is absolutely it is it has to so like okay so so um and th and this is one of the reasons why people do get they like they can't descend Mm -hmm. because the center of gravity just keeps pushing forward because they cannot, they can't produce the, um, the ER representation with the, with the yielding representation of early. So they can't access early and they can't sit down into a deep squat. So if you're trying to help someone who has pain with squatting and they are kind of like a hingy squat, uh -huh. meaning like they, they can get to that um, sticking point, and then they get stuck there and you, you see kind of compensations on the way, like maybe uh -huh. like TL junction, you see that like- Like an IR, it's okay. So that's an yeah. IR compensation. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, so they're, they're getting into that position. If you want to help them, you have to add ER to the system somehow. Thank you very much. That is, is a brilliant. Okay. Now, so this is a great opportunity. So how can we do that? Like there's more than one way, right? Right. There's more than one way to do this. So one way that I've been playing with is like a, like a lap pull down machine. If you can stand under it, um, I have a, I have a bar up there. I have them pulled onto it. Yeah. And then I add like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I, uh, I add like it, depending on how heavy they are, like 60, 80 pounds or something, Uh something less than Uh half their body weight. Uh And Uh then I have them try to keep their weight more towards their heels as they go down. Yeah. Especially like get their hips to go behind their feet. And I've seen some cool changes with that. Yeah. Long term, it seems like they need to learn how to control that themselves. So they need to learn how to bring their whole body backwards. Yeah. But so yeah. That, that's the ER though. Like I thought that was cool. I was like, okay, I have so, no idea what so, you meant by Okay, let's yeah. let's talk through this because this, I mean, this is like um it, it's it's not brand spanking new, you know, people do no, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> Um, but I, we could call it the, the, the Lunard squat if you want. Is it Lunard? No. <laughs> the, the, uh, Lunard. Lunard. Yeah, it's all good. I don't need Lunard my name squat. on it. <laughs> that's how, I, that's how I pick on people. I name things after them. <laughs> but you apparently you're only allowed one exercise. You're only allowed to have one exercise named after you after that. It's, uh, it's, um, it's just ego, I think. Um, but, um, so what, what do you think you're actually doing with the, um, de- with the, so, so, so you're, so you're taking away. You're taking away compression. Okay, so so you reduce gravity, right? Theoretically, yeah. gravity's the same, obviously, but 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 you're taking away an element of the of the what we perceive as the force of gravity. So that that avoids the compression that they're going to move into. So you've reduced that. You've also manipulated center of gravity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Keep that in mind, and that's one of the reasons. Like, like you, you actually said something that was that was that was really brilliant. Is you said that they have to learn how to control that themselves. Some people won't be able to, because their physical structure will not allow them to change shape enough to access all of those spaces. Now, um, that doesn't mean that that you're doing a bad thing. It just means like when you say that they have to control it themselves, they may never be able to do that. If I have oh, a pelvic, if I have a pelvic structure that does not allow me to to change shape enough. It'll never happen. Okay, and that—that's your person who's stuck in end game. And... Well, they're, they're not necessarily stuck in end game. So, okay, let me uh, take take a, uh, a a wide ISA individual um, with a, a, a very long training history. Um, try to convert. Here you go, Dale. You ever try to convert a, a power lifter into an Olympic lifter? Uh, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. There are people that can cross over. I mean, Shane Hammond p- pops into my head because he's the most popular one, right? Was there anybody else, Manuel, that you know came over from powerlifting that did really, really well? Uh, not at that level. Yeah, okay. Shane was a little bit different. Um, he's a different animal. Like from a physical structure standpoint, it was just had this interesting body and and very explosive for a, for a powerlifter. But, but take somebody like that typically the physical structure is just not going to allow them to access um, a, an early representation that you would need for a what we would consider like this pretty deep squat kind of a thing, right? Um, and, and some people just have a pelvic structure that does not allow that much shape change, right? I mean, you'll get you'll get narrow ISA people that don't have strong internal rotation representations, so they'll never, no matter how hard they work in the weight room, they're never going to put on a bunch of muscle. Right, they just can't because they can't produce enough pressure, enough force to to make those changes. You got people that are wide that are never going to have like this pretty little deep squat. Right, what you may find, okay, so so you added ER by reducing the the compressive forces necessary to squat. What's another way to to ER that might allow them to access greater descent? But it's probably not going to be. Um, uh huh. There you go. That, say say it. So so it's actually. Uh, so they're they'll turn their feet out. They'll orient yeah. their entire leg. Is it their feet? Leg. Is it their feet that we're turning out? No, their entire their their hip. But yeah, their their entire yeah. leg's gonna turn out. Yeah. So so if you get, 
so can we use our wide ISA bias again? Okay, so so let's just say that we have somebody that has a hip, <coughs> like a femur that's that's uh, that's got a, depending on source, uh, retroverted or uh, retrotorsion, right? So that's a reduction in the in the normal antiverted representation of the of the femur as it, as it moves into the acetabulum. So what are they going to do? They're going to be a toe out person, aren't they? Yeah. And, and it's not toes out. It's the fact that they're they're intentionally moving the hip into an ER representation to perform the activity. And and if I'm not mistaken, I believe that Mr. Hammond um, when he did make his conversion to uh, Olympic weightlifting had to ER quite a bit. But he did have a pretty awesome career as, a, as an American lifter. So. so you may find that that's, that's the accommodation that you're going to make from a permanent basis. Because again, there is a limitation to the adaptability of what people can and can't do. You, that's why you can't, you can't take a wide ISA and make them a narrow ISA. You can't take a narrow ISA and make them a wide ISA. Right? Mommy and daddy no. decided a long time ago that what we were going to be. Okay. Right? 